We have more information on the saga of the Oakland A's, plus a great interview on the NFL Draft. It's Monday, April 24th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Since the Oakland A's announced that they are buying land in Las Vegas and planning to build a stadium there, we have had some more details come out around how this went down and what comes next. First, what happened? Up until the day of the A's announcement, the team and the city of Oakland had been in negotiations. According to Casey Pratt of ABC7, the two sides were actually going to have a negotiation summit last week before A's president Dave Caval and A's owner John Fisher called Oakland Mayor Sheng Tao to say that the team had purchased land in Las Vegas and that the story had been leaked to the press. And indeed, the Las Vegas Review-Journal published a story that same night on the deal with quotes from Caval and MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred, which makes it not a leak. A leak is when you try to keep the news secret and someone finds out anyway. This seems to be the A's telling the Review-Journal what happened. On one hand, however, this shook out, someone was going to feel burned because the A's had been negotiating with Oakland, holding lots of meetings with Las Vegas, and they were going to have to pick one at some point. On the other hand, Oakland officials are pretty salty with the A's right now, and one can understand where they're coming from. Tao said that in retrospect, the A's were just using Oakland for leverage to get a better deal in Vegas, and she cut off negotiations with the A's because they don't want to be the leverage play here. I don't know if that's true, and for a long time up until the A's announcement last week, I believed that the opposite was true, that the A's were using Vegas to gain leverage on Oakland. Casey Pratt goes as far to say as that the land deal itself was meant as leverage against Oakland heading into this negotiation summit, but it backfired when Tao cut off negotiations. I'm not quite sure I'd buy that either, because the language used by Caval and Manfred in the Review Journal story was very much, we are turning our focus to Vegas. Up until Wednesday, Oakland was optimistic about this working out. They had agreed with the A's to not negotiate in the media, which is why we hadn't heard from either side in a long time. I called the city of Oakland a week ago to ask how negotiations were going, and they just said, they are ongoing, no further comment. One piece of speculation that I've seen that seems like a good guess, because it fits with what we know here, is that since the team has been negotiating with Oakland about a $12 billion development centered on a new stadium, interest rates have gone up, inflation has gone up, building and shipping costs have gone up, and that $12 billion figure is probably a lot higher now. For all of those reasons, the amount Oakland was expected to spend rose from $350 million to $567 million. This is a crude way of doing it, but if we apply those same proportions to the A's side of the project, they might have to spend close to $20 billion. Instead, they are turning to Las Vegas and looking to spend $1 to $1.5 billion, with state and local governments chipping in $500 million, and that last part is going to be the focus for the next six weeks, give or take. The Nevada legislature's session ends on June 5th. They could extend things in a special session, but for now, the deadline to get a public funding deal done is June 5th. The A's are pitching a $500 million bond from Clark County, which would be repaid using taxes associated with the stadium and whatever else they build on the 49 acres that they purchased. If there is no deal, the A's can back out of their land deal, according to the Nevada Independent, and if that happens, Oakland is maybe back on the table. The expectation, of course, is that they're going to make it work in Vegas. But over the last decade or two, the A's have made plans to move to Fremont, which is a city close to Oakland, to San Jose, where they were blocked by the Giants, which is a whole other story. They've tried to move to different sites within Oakland. So this is not a done deal. But it's as close as we've been yet to the saga finding an end. Up next, I spoke to former Heisman Trophy winner Danny Werfel on the NFL Draft, who he has his eye on, what it's like to be a quarterback expecting to go in the first round, and how he would go about making a decision on who to draft. We'll have that conversation right after this. 
Here's what's trending now. You can defer payments of a full NetSuite implementation for six months. 33,000 companies have already upgraded to NetSuite, gaining visibility and control over their financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more. Everything they need to reduce manual processes, boost efficiency, build forecasts, and increase productivity. Whether your business generates millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, take advantage of this special financing offer of no payments or interest for six months at netsuite.com slash frontoffice. That's netsuite.com slash frontoffice. All right, I am joined now by Danny Werfel, President and Chairman of the Werfel Foundation and the 1996 Heisman Trophy winner. Welcome, Danny. Hey, Owen, great to be with you. Thanks. So we've got the NFL draft coming up. How does this time of year feel for you as someone who has very much been through this process? You know, it's it's an interesting thing because unlike the fall, you know, when you're in the fall and you, you've got a big game coming up, you know, your preparation uh, matters. And then when it's game day, like your performance really matters. So like it's all about sort of you executing, you being in there. Now the draft, certainly there's some preparation and there's the combine stuff. But at this point, the big day's coming and you, you can't do anything about it. So in many ways, it's tough because you're just sort of waiting, which which isn't sort of the natural thing when you're a competitive uh, person. You want to go fight and conquer and not just sit and wait for news. So it's it's a little anxiety ridden. And of course, uh, you know, there's always prognosticators and predictions, but you never know till you know. And so you could end up getting drafted way higher than you think. More often than not, you get drafted lower than you're hoping. And so it's it's a lot of anxiety for these young men, I'm sure. And yeah, take us inside that a little bit to the degree that you can. Um, if you know, let's say you're, you're a quarterback, you're pretty sure you're going somewhere in the first round. Um, how much does it matter if you're third or seventh or 12th or 17th? Is, is that a big deal or is it, you know what, I'm going to the NFL? Uh, I, you know, when it comes down to money, the difference between the third pick and the 17th pick is pretty big. Um, but the other thing too is just where's the fit? Like you may end up in a place that's a great fit for you as a quarterback, your skills, the timing of when they need or want you to play versus what you're hoping. And so I think a lot of it, uh, you know, if you're talking about anywhere in the first five pick, I think it's more about which team you end up on and is that is that the right fit for you. But my guess is uh, all, all the guys would definitely prefer kind of those, those early picks versus a later first round just because that's a pretty big difference in money. Yeah, absolutely. And these are guys who, other than through NIL these days, um, you know, haven't really made money yet. Uh, it's all been potential and promise. Um, and actually, we'll, we'll get into NIL in a moment. But I want to just talk about the, the draft itself. So who are you looking at in terms of just, you know, big names that could make a big splash in the draft and in the NFL? Yeah, well, this is a really cool, exciting year for people that are quarterback fans. Uh, you've got three or four really high-rated quarterbacks, depending on how you look at it, that I think all have a chance to, to be electric. And, of course, being a Florida guy, I'm really excited to see what happens with Anthony Richardson. He's uh, clearly had the least productive kind of on-field college performance. But on the flip side, he demonstrated probably the highest, highest ceiling athletically of any quarterback that's come out, you know, in, in, in some cases ever in the, in the combine, at least as the, those measurements go. So he's an interesting person and, and character that, that could go really high. That could be, you know, there's a chance. There's, there's not a huge chance for anybody. But there's a chance he could be a Patrick Mahomes type player. So that gets a lot of attention. 
You've got Bryce Young, who just, you know, really led uh, amazing, uh, solid, cool character, really smart, accurate, athletic guy. And then you've got C.J. Stroud, again, who's just done some amazing things at Ohio State and, and accomplished. So all three of those guys, I think, are going to be very exciting. That's what I'm looking looking for. Uh, I don't care, again, as much who's the first or second or third pick as much, but I, I where are they going to end up and, and how are those teams going to use them and when? And I'm curious, if you were in the room, uh, you know, helping to make these decisions, how how would you parse out that floor versus ceiling things? You know, you, you don't want a dud. And um, and I'm not saying Anthony Richardson could be a dud, but, you know, maybe the combine was just like the day that he, um, you know, where everything worked out perfectly. Obviously, he showed some incredible ability there, um, which shows, yeah, the potential. But yeah, how would you balance potential versus what we've already seen on the field? Well, that's the, the age-old question uh, in this whole thing. And the interesting about the NFL is it's it's not a great development league. You know, you look at baseball and you could draft a great, amazing person out of high school or college and they could go play AAA for two seasons, get a lot of development, and then be an, an all-star major leaguer. Whereas the NFL, you kind of... You, you, you don't really practice a lot, even if you're not the starting quarterback. You know, you do some in training camp, and then once the season starts. So it's really kind of like you just get thrown into the wolves at some point. Uh, so that's that's the unique piece. There's really not a training development really good component. But, you know, how often do you find uh, a generational talent like a Patrick Mahomes or a Josh Allen? And, you know, and you look at Josh Allen's college statistics, they weren't super impressive either, but he demonstrated certain abilities that then translated in the right system. So I think uh, I think the bottom line is if, if you think somebody has a high enough ceiling, especially at the quarterback spot, you gotta you gotta take a chance because uh, you know that that could be the a whole franchise uh, direction change for you down the road. You know, you, there's a whole lot of guys that maybe could be good but wouldn't be really bad and you want to have some of those guys on your team, too, to have some consistency. But if you can ever get a star at the quarterback position, that, that's something you don't want to pass up. Yeah, and that lack of a training period, I think, is both what's so tantalizing about the draft, is both with NFL and NBA, is that these guys could be stars in the league next year. Um, at the same time, um, I think maybe in your time, there was more of this expectation um, of they're, they're not going to be stars in their rookie year, maybe not their second year, but, but give them a few years. You know, they'll they'll learn the league, they'll learn the position and and then things will start to happen. Um, do you think you had a bit more of a buffer when when you were heading into the NFL? I think that kind of goes by each team. There's probably a little bit of overall culture with that. But uh, it just depends on the team. So, you know, if, if I were a team that had to have a new player starting at quarterback this year, to me, uh, a guy like Bryce Young is, is more polished and ready to go, and C.J. Stroud has done more. But if I'm a team that has an established, good veteran quarterback that's probably kind of moving towards the end of the career, you know, like in the last few years, uh, you know, to, to go play behind Tom Brady or, or, or one of these guys like that, you know, and you have a place where you could bring an Anthony Richardson in and he could sit and watch for a year or two before he had to be on the field. That Then I'd be leaning more towards that. So I think it's more team-specific. So, you know, we mentioned NIL earlier. You are now working with the Florida Victorious Group, uh, which is a, around NIL issues. Uh, what do you do with them? And just how is Florida approaching the whole topic of NIL? 
Well, I think everybody's tried to figure this thing out in real time. And, you know, there's different um, ways that different schools have done it. I think some have had a little more integrity than others in terms of how they've tried to do it. Uh, you know, Florida got behind a little bit on a few things, I think, by not trying to be on the forefront or pushing things. And they've really uh, put together an incredible crew now, just launched this new uh, program called Florida Victorious. Uh, they approached me about being on the board. They're tying uh, a lot of NIL into community service, which is really appealing for me. So the athletes that are part of the NIL program now at Florida will be uh, doing a lot of hands-on community service work and helping to promote charities in and around Gainesville and Florida. So that part sort of uh, is exciting for me. You know, my, my life's mission is to inspire service and unity in the world. And so this sort of is an opportunity to help shape that a little bit at Florida. Um, you know, college football, for good or bad, uh, is a talent acquisition uh, business. In the past, it's been a process, you know, it's a process of recruiting, but now it's also this business uh, of attracting and, and, and having uh, opportunities for young men to make money when they get there. So I think that's a unique world we live in. I'm not honestly thrilled with it. I think there, uh, there's a lot of things I wish that could be tweaked about it. Maybe eventually some things will change a little, but it is the world we live in, and this is my kind of way to, to give back. Yeah, and of course, community service is near and dear to your heart. So if you could tell us you know, what the Werfel Foundation is and, and the work you do there. Yeah, well, um, the Werfel Foundation is relatively new. I, I've been doing community service really full-time since I retired from the NFL, working at Desire Street Ministries. We do inner-city work all over the Southeast and continue to do that. The Werfel Foundation is a little bit newer. We've put that together. It's to inspire service and unity in the world. I help a lot of former athletes with their foundation work and help different people strategize how they want to do nonprofit work, do a lot of consulting on that front. And then we also um, merged with the Werfel Trophy Award, which is a college uh, community service trophy for the Division I college football players that do community service. And so uh, that's been going on for 18 or 19 years now, but now we've merged that with the Werfel Foundation and we had 109 nominees this year from all over the country. And our job is really to spotlight them, to honor them in hopes that their community service inspires other people to do more as well. So the Werfel Foundation is just, we're trying to do our part to make the world a little bit better. All right, excellent. Danny Werfel, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Owen. That's it for today. Subscribe if you haven't already on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.